Hi, this is Terry McCarty, and you are listening to another episode of uh, Reviews and Otherwise. And the topic uh, for this episode is uh, 70s Westerns, starting out with a brief uh, Clint Eastwood discussion, and then proceeding to genre deconstruction, which a lot of uh, directors engaged in uh, in the 1970s. So let's get started with Clint Eastwood. And if you haven't heard it, I would recommend the Lex G podcast, uh, where he talks about Clint's career in detail from Fistful of Dollars, 64, up until The Rookie, uh, which was around uh, 1990. So, recommending that uh, heartily, and out of respect, uh, I try to keep my uh, Clint discussion pretty brief and uh, just started out by mentioning 1970, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, uh, which he did with Shirley MacLaine and uh, was directed by Don Siegel and then Bud Bettacher was involved with it at some point in the development. And that had the Ennio Morricone score with the donkey sound effects uh, you hear in the main title theme. And uh, it's essentially uh, Clint and Don making for Universal a man with no name picture that was probably a little uh, more modified than uh, something Leon would have made, and uh, and certainly people remember uh, Shirley MacLaine uh, giving Clint as uh, good as he got uh, as the traveling nun, and. Uh, Let's move on from there to three years later, uh, High Plains Drifter, which was a man with no name, but uh, Clint, directing himself, took uh, out of the Leone context and uh, put it into a more explicit uh, allegory and uh, and this was the hellish version, which he a dozen years later tried to uh, with Pale Rider modify that a bit and uh, uh, make the character more uh, avenging angel and. Uh, just to recommend uh, High Plains uh, Drifter and uh, also the more conventional John Sturgis, uh, Joe Kidd, which probably for its period, uh, Joe Kidd is maybe a little bit woke uh, because of of Clint's character finding some empathy for the man he's supposed to be tracking down. John Saxon playing a Mexican character, Louis Jama. And so probably for 1972, uh, it's a little bit woke in in terms of uh, mainstream Westerns uh, at that juncture, or especially mainstream Westerns uh, coming out of a conventionally-minded studio like Universal. So, High Plains Drifter and Joe Kidd on the current Blu-rays are recommending, and I'm going to be trying to check them out myself because they now, each of them have uh, commentary tracks. 
by the famed uh, director Alex Cox, who still his uh, best known films are in the 80s, uh, Repo Man and Sid and Nancy. But Cox has been a astute historian of uh, Westerns and especially Italian uh, Westerns uh, over the recent decades. And it would be, or I'm guessing will be uh, quite fascinating to uh, watch those again uh, with Mr. Cox's uh, uh, learned commentary. So now that leaves uh, just two films to, to discuss. Uh, the Beguiled, uh, spring 1971, I believe, is when it came out. And uh, as uh, Don Siegel said, it's the best film I ever made and the best film Clint ever made. And uh, it's not strictly Western since it takes place during the Civil War, but it's something that, uh, especially for its period, it's pretty unapologetic about uh, throwing stones at uh, toxic masculinity and uh, misogyny. And uh, to Clint's credit, he goes there, he takes up residence, uh, he's spectacularly evil toward the end of the film and I'm sure that uh, the audiences of the time that didn't reject it uh, for not being a typical Clint probably enjoyed the aspect of uh, Pamela and Ferdin who was the ubiquitous in her childhood and into her teens, uh, ubiquitous uh, actress, and probably appreciated the fact that she's a key instrument in, uh, in the Eastwood character's uh, ultimate destruction. Now on to 1976 and the outlaw Josie Wales, which was started by Philip Kaufman and Clint fired him, took over direction. And if you want Clint's version of, uh, of the drop kicking of Philip Kaufman, then go to Richard Schickel's uh, Eastwood bio, which is very, very sycophantic and uh, pretty much uh, you know, anything Clint uh, said to Schickel is wonderful and not to be, you know, dismissed or whatever. And sidebar, uh, Patrick McGilligan did do a bio about uh, Eastwood and uh, in its original form, it uh, was pretty pointed at uh, the gap between the image that uh, Clint's crafted and, and the actual person behind the image. And if memory is correct, uh, there had to be some edits before it was uh, published in the US. And, but back to Outlaw Josie Wales, so uh, it was, uh, the first conscious courting that Clint did of uh, mainstream critics and uh, probably the best thing to happen to Clint in terms of uh, approval and people taking a look at the film that uh, wouldn't bother with a Clint Eastwood film otherwise was when Orson Welles uh, came out and uh, praised it. And even some mainstream critics of the period, like Marie Brenner, who for a time did a column for Texas Monthly, and it was basically like, oh, uh, 
I guess you could say somewhere but on the scale between Pauline Kael and Renata Adler at uh, uh, scorn for uh, mainstream uh, movie making in the 70s. But uh, Marie Brenner, although she's saying the uh, Josie Wells as being overlong and occasionally simple-minded, she at least recognized the uh, overall quality of the film, and uh, of course that was another step towards uh, uh, Quint uh, later becoming uh, more of a conscious artiste, uh, but post-Josie Wales, uh, there wasn't uh, really any attempt to reach for art. Uh, I, I believe, like Roger Ebert, who was always on board with Plant, kind of uh, made more of the gauntlet than it, than it is. And, uh, and I don't think anybody has ever looked at every which way but loose and tried to make a a uh, case for for that is a neglected uh, uh, masterpiece. So it wasn't till early 80s, Bronco Billy, Honky Tonk Man, and then from, you could say from Pale Rider, more or less onward, that's when Clint uh, went back to building a support system of media and uh, changing or making sure that negative perceptions of him were changed. So that's all for Mr. Eastwood and uh, I'll be right back in just a little bit. Hello again and we're now into the Western genre deconstruction uh, portion and for the purposes of this episode I've uh, defined uh, deconstruction as where in story aesthetic form or directorial or actors uh, approaches Deconstruction means that you have a Western film which veers away and sometimes quite sharply from traditional Western genre storytelling. Robert Altman made two uh, deconstructed Westerns. 1971 was McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which... Uh, is uh, justly acclaimed uh, for uh, Warren Beatty and Julie Christie in the title roles. The cinematography of Elmo Sigmund. The uh, uh, location filming. The very astute use of uh, Leonard Cohen songs on the soundtrack. And... Uh, basically was the right film at the right time for the for the counterculture of uh, how the west uh, as we know it uh, had a very uh, rough and tumble beginnings uh, before uh, quote-unquote civilization came through and uh, homogenized and uh, was willing to to kill to achieve that and uh, probably because Altman was coming off of MASH uh, too that the, the film did uh, do, do business at the box office and uh, 
And for the next few years, Altman was able to go largely from strength to strength, uh, with the hypothesis uh, being around 1975 uh, with uh, Nashville. And uh, now we get to the other Altman Western Deconstruction, a film that's uh, very good in its own way but uh, neglected, and it's called Buffalo Bill and the Indians, and had the misfortune of coming out uh, around the bicentennial period in 1976, when the U.S. wanted to celebrate a not too probing examination of the 200 years uh, uh, from the Declaration up to to the 70s. And uh, in that period, you had things like, and I was old enough to go and be part of it, the American Freedom Train, which uh, Johnny Cash would uh, plug on TV, and what the American Freedom Train was was various artifacts, uh, even some movie props, and you'd uh, get on the train, I believe the train where it was was somewhere outside of Wichita Falls, I think around uh, Shepherd Air Force Base, and you'd uh, whiz on a little slow tram built into the floor, and you'd look to your left, look to your right, and uh, You'd see the carefully curated uh, 200 Years of America. And uh, for Altman, with uh, Buffalo Bill and the Indians, he was sort of uh, snake bit in two ways. Uh, number one, Pauline Kael, uh, having come through for Altman by re reviewing an early cut of Nashville and making sure it came out uh, pretty much as uh, Altman wanted it. Uh, uh, that turned out to be Pauline's last come through time and uh, she turned her nose up at Buffalo Bill and the Indians, which was done with Dino De Laurentiis, I believe, involved, and it came out through United Artists and if I read correctly, I think this kind of killed uh, Altman being able to uh, direct Ragtime, which of course we know later went to Milos Forman. And the other thing was in 1976 when, you know, for the first half of the summer uh, you had mainstream audiences wanting to see things like The Omen and uh, they weren't interested in seeing Paul Newman deconstruct the myth of Buffalo Bill in the Wild West show and didn't, didn't want to see a movie that might make them think a little too much about uh, American history as it occurred versus a sanitized circus uh, version of American history. And um, to me, the strength of uh, Buffalo Bill and the Indians is the Nashville-like uh, ensemble interplay and the, uh, the humor of the of, you know, show business as it was in that period, and uh, you have Burt Lancaster turn up for a little bit as uh, Ned Buntline, who was a actual uh, uh, myth-making uh, dime novelist uh, from, from that period, and uh, it's just... Uh, Really, it's a neglected film, and uh, 
in a current environment where you have the uh, Republican Party all agreeing that uh, that American history, especially white America, mistreating black America and Native uh, in American um, first America, uh, that the Republican Party makes loud noises about critical race theory, meaning don't don't teach that in schools, uh, keep the keep the myth alive, uh, which is the kind of thing that uh, probably if Ray Bradbury were still alive, he even he as kind of conservative as he could be, uh, probably would reach for a trash can and throw up at the at the GOP's current behavior. So, anyway, Buff Buffalo Bill and the Indians has come out on DVD, and uh, it would be nice to to see it given a good uh, Blu-ray treatment, which a lot of that now depends on uh, MGM and uh, MGM's. Uh, new parent of Amazon, if if they can at least uh, find enough value in it to where, if nothing else, you'll see it in the Amazon Prime rotation. And let's segue from that to Robert Benton's uh, Bad Company, which came out uh, in the fall of uh, 1972. And... Uh, The ad for it I first remember had a tagline of two Civil War draft dodgers fight their own private war, which kind of sold the film as something that really isn't. Uh, it's more of a, you could just describe it as a sort of a uh, antithesis of... Uh, what Mark Rydell and John Wayne were doing with the cowboys of, uh, of that the that the kids were going to you know once Wayne was gone uh, uh, go through the West being uh, you know noble cattlemen and uh, grown up too fast noble cattlemen but uh, what uh, Benton and David Newman uh, did with uh, Bad Company was to have the kids uh, become outlaws, but the authority figures were uh, Barry Brown's uh, Drew Dixon, and Barry Brown died far too young, but uh, uh, he kind of had a sort of, at least in Bad Company, had a young Jimmy Stewart presence and, and Bogdanovich used him a couple of years later as a Winterborn and the adaptation of Daisy Miller as Sybil Shepherd. And so Brown kind of played the priggish uh, sort of straight man to uh, Jeff Bridges as Jake Rumsey, and this is when you know, Jeff had the grin and the boyishness, and uh, and you could easily buy him as a uh, uh, you know unreconstructed rascal. And with uh, Bad Company, what's interesting about it is sort of the mi mixtures of realism, humor and uh, unapologetic bleakness. If remembering back on the film, it's like I don't think you see sunlight uh, in very many shots, if any. And um, also partway through is a great uh, film-stealing performance by David Huddleston as a, as a sort of outlaw king figure and allegedly Newman and Benton 
based him off of uh, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who a couple of years before they worked on the script uh, for, a, for a film uh, Mankiewicz made uh, called There Was a Crooked Man with Kirk Douglas and Henry Fonda. And um, so, be that as it may, it's, and uh, like uh, some Westerns and other films of its period, uh, it opts for a freeze frame uh, ending and uh, isn't afraid of uh, ambiguity where, the, where you can guess uh, what the Brown and Bridges characters uh, what will or, or, or what may or may not happen to them uh, after the finale moment. And that came out through Paramount and even, even for its period it, it wasn't uh, acceptably, I guess, uh, anti-establishment enough and it was certainly not something that a fan of Wayne or Glenn Ford would uh, go out of their way to see, so the film flopped. And I think when I saw it, it was uh, right before Christmas of 72, and I think it was only going to play like uh, in Wichita Falls for like three, four days. So I'm glad I caught it. And as coincidence would have it, a few years later, uh, Benton, uh, under the aegis of Robert Altman, did a different kind of genre reconstruct, uh, deconstruction, sorry, with uh, The Late Show, and uh, had the great one-off teaming of uh, Art Carney and Lily Tomlin, and, and uh, even more so than Altman's own uh, The Long Goodbye was a thorough turning over of the uh, private eye genre. And one more note about Bad Company is that uh, Ralph Rosenblum, who wrote a book about his editing career called uh, When the Shooting Stops, the Cutting Begins, uh, talks about Bad Company briefly in the book, and Rosenblum was dismissive. Apparently he had somewhat conservative tastes, I guess, and regarding uh, movies and... Uh, the one thing that uh, apparently really irked Ralph Rosenblum was that the film had a solo piano music score. And Rosenblum kind of huffed about how that was going to accentuate every flaw in the film. And to me, the piano score is great. Uh, it works with the film put you into the uh, 1860s period properly uh, and much less of a distraction or a betrayal than, than a conventional orchestral score would have been. So I, that's, oh, Rosenbaum's book is uh, valuable in a lot of respects, but that's, uh, something I certainly disagree with him on. And uh, now we're going to have another brief uh, pause and I'll be right back. And uh, let's go a bit further into deconstruction of the Western genre. Uh, and uh, now let's focus on the one time only uh, instance of John Houston directing 
a screenplay from the uber-conservative tough guy mind of uh, John Milius. And that's 1972's uh, National General Pictures Christmas release, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, again with uh, Paul Newman as uh, Judge Roy Bean, and the film leaning a bit into the hanging judge aspect of uh, Roy Bean, but uh, Houston, I guess, downplayed the most uh, go get him vigilante elements and played up the humor. And, uh, and years later, in an interview, uh, Houston talked about uh, Milius's script and uh, said something like, uh, "Well, I was trying to make a turd uh, smell street. Sorry, smell sweet." And to that, uh, Milius was told this, and his response is, was something like, "He thought my script was a turd, Jesus." So. It's uh, the life and time of George Roy Bean's uh, aesthetically uh, counting as uh, deconstruction because there's certainly like Italian Western uh, bleakness uh, in the in the beginning. You could say the instances where characters talk to the camera. Uh, that's maybe could be called a, a Jean-Luc Godard-esque and uh, and then you have a sequence that's uh, certainly incorrect by today's uh, standards of uh, Stacy Keach uh, as uh, Bad Bob, the outlaw, uh, going through town, and uh, and then there's a visual gag uh, that's very cartoon-esque in terms of uh, the demise of Bad Bob. Uh, we'll not give that gag away here, and. Uh, and then there's also like a certain retreat into wanting to repeat uh, something that was worked for Newman in terms of uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and that's the song interlude where my memory flashes back to Newman, Victoria Principal, and uh, Newman's Pet Bear, and, and the song was titled Marmalade, Molasses, and Honey, and that was, uh, I think Marilyn and Alan Bergman wrote it, and Andy Williams sang it, and uh, it's a song that's as obscure as B.J. Thomas's uh, version of uh, Bacharach's uh, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head is uh, still well known to this day. And with, uh, with the Judge, Judge Roy Bean, probably the, the one great sequence in it uh, is the the during the 1920s, uh, well, the real Judge Roy Bean was dead, but at that time. But uh, you know, this is a Ralph. Sorry, my brain's flashing. Uh, John Milius's idea of uh, uh, myth. Um, so Newman rides back into town pulls out his guns, uh, goes to work on the outlaws, uh, and you have 
one terrific uh, shot of, uh, and it's sort of medium to long shot of uh, Noman rearing back on the horse on the, like the upstairs balcony of the saloon and, uh, and in a way that's mythic in a way that the rest of the film uh, doesn't quite reach and you could say that maybe with the exceptions of the Victoria Principal and and uh, Jacqueline Bissett and well also add uh, uh, Ava Gardner is nearly nine that that the the film is not a landmark of feminist filmmaking and uh, I'm sure that really shows itself badly um, for audiences coming to it in 2021. So moving to uh, 1974, uh, Jan Troll, the uh, Swedish director, did the films The Emigrants and The New Land, which were picked up by Warner Brothers. And, and Troel did a English language film after that called uh, Zandi's Bride. And it was, I believe the screenplay was Mark Norman, who is probably best known to people of a certain age for writing a book called Oklahoma Crude that uh, Stanley Kramer later filmed with George C. Scott, uh, Faye Dunaway and Jack Palance about the uh, oil fields and, and corporate uh, malfeasance uh, towards uh, independent uh, uh, wildcatters. So uh, Zandi's Bride uh, was, counts as a, a form of deconstruction because up till then, if there were movies or TV about mail order brides and, uh, and they're adjusting to their husbands, it was probably done in a very rollicking comic uh, fashion and with Zandi's Bride, uh, Troil basically just uh, had uh, Gene Hackman behaving badly for a good portion of the film and, and not bothering to listen to or accept uh, his wife, uh, Lee Volman, for who she is and, and what strengths of character that she has. And I guess this is a form of misogyny that you still find uh, to this day that Hackman's character throws a fit because uh, she's uh, not a pretty young thing in her 20s and that she's in her 30s. And, and I think you can go on Twitter and or other things in social media and see see that kind of stunted attitude towards women uh, still existing. And and Zandi's Bride uh, wasn't a hit uh, when it came out, and I believe that the first. TV showings, uh, networks did what they often did in the 70s and, and uh, tried to retitle in a grabbier fashion. So the first showings, I believe, had the uh, alternate title of For Better, For Worse. And I didn't discover Zandi's Bride till about 1985 uh, on on a local Albuquerque TV station, and by then it had reverted to the original title, and I just wanted to go ahead and say that uh, it's probably not a classic, but it's a 
certainly for the 70s it's uh, pretty woke and uh, and Hackman's uh, convincing as a you know really hateful uh, character for the balance of it and, until he uh, starts to acquire some uh, sense and uh, and real character uh, change and from there let's move on to a example of deconstruction more by actor than director and it's Arthur Penn's 1976 The Missouri Breaks which United Artists at the time sold as a big prestige film because it was the first time that uh, uh, Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson acted together and it uh, definitely turned out to be a one-off and it also had the pedigree of the script being done by Thomas McWayne who uh, a couple of years earlier uh, Frank Perry's Rancho Deluxe and then and then there was the uh, adaptation of 92 in the Shade with uh, uh, Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. So with the Missouri Breaks, um, McGuane was trying to do like a hippie parable of, you know, uh, Jack and his uh, gang of outlaws and they do wrestling, Jack settles down in a house, uh, courts the Kathleen Lloyd uh, playing the daughter of, uh, of uh, not nice uh, corporate rancher, John McLeam. And, and McLeam's character hires uh, Brando as Robert E. Lee Clayton, but he's known, the character's known pretty much through it as Lee Clayton. And uh, apparently it was written as a more conventional uh, bounty hunter role. And uh, uh, Marlon told Arthur Penn, uh, Arthur, let me have some fun. So, yeah, so uh, Marlon had a lot of, lots of fun in the role. And... Uh, He's in drag for a little bit of it. He gets to uh, uh, share a carrot with his horse. And, and uh, I guess to steal a little bit from uh, Richard Shekel's analysis in his essay book on Brando, uh, Shekel did have something astute to say about, about the film that uh, the Missouri Breaks doesn't make sense as a Western, but it makes sense as a horror picture because uh, you have, through the second half, Marlon popping up and drowning people or shooting people in outhouses. And you know, in all these moments are when you least expect them. And... Uh, and... Uh, Probably because the determination was uh, on a PG rating that the violence isn't uh, as graphic as one would have uh, imagined, and uh, and the final moment uh, between uh, Jack and Marlin is staged in a way that makes it uh, markedly less uh, bloody than, than, you know, say, Michael Winter would have uh, done with, uh, with the same uh, staging. But uh, with the Marlon Brando performance in the Missouri Breaks, I've probably gone back and forth on it. I wasn't... Uh, thrilled with it when I first saw the film, but I've uh, later on 
it seemed like it maybe Marlin was right it did it did make some sense to to have for him to do something to to play against the stayed uh, period recreation re recreation and uh, and especially uh, since in since he was playing opposite his uh, good friend and Mulholland Drive neighbor Jack, uh, give him give him something to to play off of, uh, especially the bathtub confrontation scene where Marlon's um, hamminess seems to have a positive effect on on. Uh, on Jack's uh, portion of the scene, that the that the uh, exasperation and and anger seemed pretty much uh, working for the character, like and uh, Missouri breaks, of course, uh, probably did a little bit of business uh, because the uh, the teaming. And I think once the rev reviews, which were less than ecstatic, got out, uh, it obviously wasn't a uh, smash. And uh, and now it's sort of uh, fallen into a kind of obscurity, but it, it's worth a look. Uh, and because it's UA owned by MGM, my guess will be the MGM's new parent Amazon will probably uh, make that more Amazon Prime visible. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what today's audiences make of it. And uh, on that note, uh, one more break for me, and then for the final segment, Sam Peckinpah. And this is the final segment, and uh, Sam Peckinpah. And 1970s uh, Ballad of Cable Hogue, I'm probably not going to count that as a genre deconstruction. But uh, it was uh, Peck and Paw uh, being being uh, sentimental without you know being too crudely uh, sexist, uh, which I'll discuss a later uh, film of his in a few minutes that certainly falls from a great height into the. Uh, Olympic-sized uh, swimming pool of crude sexism, and and with the Ballad of Cable Hogue, it's uh, memorable for uh, Jason Robards, Della Stevens, and uh, and uh, line of dialogue, uh, which is really quotable. Uh, about the finding the water in the desert, about I found it where it wasn't. And uh, unfortunately for, for Sam, people wanted more of the Wild Bunch. And, uh, and that was a change up that despite uh, what he made and uh, Put uh, put some uh, relative heart into. Uh, it, I believe it got dumped uh, even at the time of release by Warner Brothers, and uh, of course uh, the Peck and Paw uh, uh, fan base is uh, kept it uh, firmly. Uh, rated as a essential part of the canon. So 
In terms of uh, deconstruction, though, you could argue that what turned out to be Peckinpah's uh, final traditional Western, 1973's uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, was in, in narrative, uh, was a screenplay written by Rudolf Wurlitzer, and uh, of course we know the premises that uh, Pat Garrett went riding and carousing with uh, Billy the Kid and, and gang, and then once the, according to the script and the direction that the Santa Fe political ring got in, into the picture, uh, Garrett uh, decided to, for career's sake, uh, sell out to the moneyed uh, interests and uh, began uh, chasing Billy around the New Mexico territory until 1881 when he shot him to death. And what the Peckinpah and Wurlitzer do is a great uh, obituary for the uh, counterculture and uh, Three years on from from uh, things like Kent State and uh, where a lot of people just decided uh, stop being hippies, uh, cut your hair, lay down, make friends with uh, with uh, establishment, and uh, do a lot of. Uh, talking to yourself about how you're going to change things from within. And as, as we know with uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, uh, the, the making of it uh, wasn't always uh, smooth and it like a lot of the things done on, on Jim Aubrey's MGM, uh, meant that uh, Jim Aubrey, who uh, was a very prominent person at CBS before becoming a studio head, uh, that Aubrey thought uh, he was a better judge of filmmaking than filmmakers themselves were. So the film was yanked away from Peckinpah and released around May of 73 and it was uh, apparently I've never seen this version but apparently it was cut to uh, make it play as much of a uh, conventional western with violent action sequences as possible and then uh, later uh, CBS, ironically, got hold of the film and uh, cut it uh, a bit further to make it, uh, I guess, like mild PG friendly for for uh, network viewing because that's back in the seventies when network executives to justify censorship wouldn't say bromides like. Television is a guest in the home. But the version that I have seen of uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is the one that uh, came from the Turner uh, company and uh, runs a bit longer. Apparently it's not fully what, what Peckinpah had in mind, but it restored the framing device he wanted, which was the the uh, killing of Pat James Coburn's uh, Pat Garrett in the early 20th century, which pretty much seemed to imply that uh, he was uh, of no further use to the powers that be. And, uh, and uh, from what I remember, Christofferson was good as uh, Billy, but uh, about a decade and a half too old and 
and you could argue the same uh, for for Bob Dylan playing the uh, sidekick uh, named Alias, although the the best contribution Dylan made to the film was uh, giving the soundtrack the great song uh, "Knocking on Heaven's Door," and I believe there's a. I think in the Turner cut you do kind of hear it in the background because there's the scene where uh, Slam Pickens' character goes down to the river to 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 die. And so, and uh, that that was the end of. Uh, Peckinpah as a quote-unquote Western director, and you'll notice I didn't say anything about Junior Bonner, but because there's going to be a, uh, another Western episode, uh, probably somewhere in the next uh, few weeks, um, and it's going to explore the subgenre of um, of um, modern-day uh, rodeo films that uh, popped up at the beginning and and, uh, and into 1972. Uh, I believe the first one out of the shoot was uh, the Cliff Robertson's uh, J.W. Coop and then Steve Einat the, the actor who directed just one film before he passed, and that one film was a very neglected, uh, not perfect, but had a lot of promise, uh, The Honkers with uh, James Coburn, again, as a very amoral uh, uh, rodeo writer. And... Uh, you have Junior Bonner, um, which was gave you the once in a lifetime uh, pairing of Steve McQueen with uh, Robert Preston and Ida Lupino as his parents. And finally, uh, Stuart Miller, who John Wayne didn't think of as a good enough director, uh, uh, but Miller did make a very good uh, film that. Is part of both part of the rodeo subgenre and also uh, for 1972 pretty woke about the uh, humiliations that Native Americans went through both with the I guess what was called Indian schools uh, and uh, and then going from that back out into the uh, into the uh, world of white people uh, when the legends die which was the breakout performance of uh, frederick forrest and also uh, fine work from richard widmark so having having said that i'll uh, wrap the rest of this up quickly uh, Probably the Peckinpah uh, followers uh, would uh, count, perhaps as uh, genre deconstruction, the modern day stuff and and frolic and and uh, you know very hard to defend in terms of sexism and misogyny. Uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, which United Artists uh, apparently thought so much of. They did a guts, you have to have guts to see this uh, kind of ad campaign, which in a way was kind of made the film, uh, you know, like the uh, slave exploitation uh, campaign that uh, Paramount and Dino De Laurentiis did for Mandingo and 
with uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, the one positive thing you can say is it's uh, Warren Oates playing uh, Peck and Paw as he probably would have liked to uh, have regarded himself, you know, the soulful artist, uh, you know, wanting money and and the the girl, uh, in this case, uh, Isola Vega, and uh, willing to resort to savagery and and the and and it all boomerangs on him, and it's it's worth probably watching for Oates's uh, performance, but. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I can't make a case for Alfredo Garcia being like this brilliant uh, film that the you know that you're a philistine if you don't like, and, and I can't do that. And then, last of all, in terms of I guess this would count as a modern day western, and and as irony would have it, uh, this was like Peck and Paw's one successful uh, box office film uh, in the remainder of his career after The Getaway. Convoy, 1978, based on the C.W. McCall uh, talk, uh, well, you could call it sort of uh, spoken word with the uh, song chorus about the uh, rubber duck, the trucker, being pursued by the by the sheriff, and uh, and you had Christopherson more appropriately cast again as uh, as the as rubber duck, the trucker, and uh, Ali McGraw, you know, probably happy to be away from Steve McQueen at that point, and. Uh, doing her best uh, and, the, and the role is kind of like uh, thinly written if I remember correctly because it's like Cassie H shows up as a waitress very early on and is good in her small role and you kind of wish she hadn't disappeared like uh, toward the end you have uh, uh, the fine actress Madge Sinclair pops up as a female trucker and you wish also that uh, Peck and Paw had, you know, got his coke habit, apparently. Well, it's documented in, in Marshall Fine's book, uh, Body Sam. Wish he could have uh, seen the uh, potential in Cassie Yates and uh, Matt Sinclair and given them uh, more scenes, more dialogue. <laughs> And uh, and it was written by uh, Bill, a.k.a. B.W.L. Norton, who uh, uh, also, with Christopherson and Gene Hackman, did the very memorable uh, 1971 Cisco Pike, which is the sort of the spiritual father of uh, Inherent Vice. And... Uh, and and the Norton script was basically, I think it, from what I remember Stephen Farber saying in the West, it began as a, you know, crying about the 55 mile an hour speed limit, and then it kind of evolved into the, as uh, Ernest Borgnine's uh, sheriff is chasing Chris and Allie across the Southwest, uh, that the support that uh, that they get uh, means that there's uh, they find themselves being able to be protected by a makeshift family of truckers and other outcasts, and. Uh, it's probably worth watching once. Uh, it, I mean, and, uh, because Peck and Paul was trying to be well behaved and make another PG film. It's uh, it doesn't have the grunginess of uh, Alfredo Garcia, and it's 
not really one of his uh, best films, and Pauline K.O. was trying to come to his rescue and wrote this New Yorker piece that was comparing the some of the cinematography and compositions to like the painter J.M.W. Turner and, um, you know, trying to, you know, do him a solid, which didn't, didn't really work because it, it was a few more years before Peck and Paul made his final film, The Osterman Weekend, which uh, did come out years ago on DVD, and I think that has, like, the studio-mandated version and, like, a rough cut that Sam put together himself. And uh, and if I remember right, Ann Thompson, the lady that's in charge of IndieWire back then, she was a publicist, so I believe she's mentioned in a little bit in the, in the Marshall Fine book. And anyway... Um, that's the episode, and uh, thanks so much for listening, and uh, if you like the episode or the reviews and otherwise podcast, uh, please don't hesitate to let people know. Uh, you can... Link, link to it, uh, retweet it, uh, mention it on Facebook, and uh, spread the word. And uh, I'll be back in a few days uh, with another episode. And very likely, one of the things I'll be talking about is Edgar Wright's new documentary, The Sparks Brothers. So this is Terry McCarty. And wherever you are listening to this, day or night, thanks ever so much, and uh, see you again soon.